locked off. Hey guys, Pixlavica back again. We are back with Donkey Kong Dossier, part two of two. Um, this show, we talk a little bit about, you know, my personal memories and experiences and, and thoughts on Donkey Kong. Start with that, because I uh, conspicuously left that out of the first part. And then I'm going to segue into discussing... The King of Kong, the infamous documentary, mockumentary, whatever you want to call it, about Donkey Kong. I enjoyed putting that one together because I I learned some things. I did quite a bit of research on it, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. So, anyway, let's get started. One thing I haven't really talked about yet, and I won't get into now, is what's kind of my history with Donkey Kong. Now, like many... Atari kids. My first introduction to Donkey Kong was the Atari 2600 game, which I believe was released in 1983 or so. You know, that game, if you're familiar with the content, um, that, that get, tends to get a lot of flack due to the fact that it only includes two of the four screens of the arcade game. And, um, and they're pretty watered-down versions of those screens at that. But of course, kind of like Atari 2600 Pac-Man, I was completely oblivious to the ways that the 2600 version of the game fell short of the arcade original. To me, it was just another game to play. And not one, frankly, I remember playing all that heavily. As an adult now, I like to visit retro arcades whenever I get the chance and uh, almost all of them I've been to have had a working Donkey Kong machine. But, like I said, this is as an adult. I've got to stress that part. I'm just a little bit on the young side to uh, have been hanging out in arcades when Donkey Kong was in its heyday. I have only one memory of ever seeing a Donkey Kong arcade game in the 80s uh, when I was a kid, and that was in the summer of either 1984 or 1985. Uh, my family used to go on these week-long summer vacations to cottage resorts about six, seven hours north of where I live. And um, one of them had a uh, sit-down Donkey Kong cocktail in the common area, like in the lodge. Of course, around that time, whenever we'd, we'd see, like, me and my, my brother and cousins, whenever we'd see arcade games, we'd always want to try them out because they always seemed so much more exciting and visually appealing than the Atari 2600 games we were used to, so I gave the game a try, and I distinctly remember this, but I gave the game a try, and I, I probably didn't get up to the third girder on the first screen. I remember quickly realizing that putting my precious few coins into that uh, machine was 
be a like, horrendous waste of money, so I doubt I played more than one or two credits the entire week we were there and just focused spending my money at the snack bar on, on candy. That's really it. I mean, that's pretty much it for my exposure to Donkey Kong in the early days. It wasn't a big favorite of mine at all. Certainly lagging far behind the likes of Ms. Pac-Man, Frogger, and Qbert. All of which I felt were much better games on my main gaming uh, platform at the time, which was, of course, the, the 2600. But, um, like most other kids my age, I'd go on to enjoy various other games starring Mario. For me, um, mostly on the NES. Um, I enjoyed the original Super Mario Brothers, Super Mario 2, Super Mario 3. But for me, um, not so much anything after that. Even with that exposure to Mario again uh, on the NES, uh, Donkey Kong stayed kind of as a distant memory for me until about 2012 or so when I started to really get into MAME. Actually, even even after getting into MAME, like, full bore, like, playing it all the time, and uh, developing a strong appreciation for golden age arcade games that I was too young to enjoy in the early 80s when they were actually on location everywhere. It still uh, took me quite some time to kind of come around to Donkey Kong. Just like, you know, the other classics, like Pac-Man, Q-Bird, Frogger, um, Dig Dug, all those ones, I'd, I'd uh, on my main cabinet, I'd, I'd try Donkey Kong here and there, but I, I found the, the first screen so brutally difficult and frustrating that I'd always end up just quitting the game and moving on. But around that time, I was participating in... Um, Various little friendly online meme tournaments where people would suggest different games and a bunch of players would submit screenshots of their scores and just the you know friendly competition, right? And Donkey Kong came up a few times in those things and participating in those competitions kind of inspired me to uh, try to forge ahead a little bit and improve my personal high score on the game. But yet still there was... There's, there was one other thing that was kind of keeping my interest in the game at bay. Around that time, I was really getting sick and tired of hearing about the King of Kong. It's not that I didn't enjoy the movie, but I felt that because... I felt like because of that movie, nobody would talk about high scores on any game other than Donkey Kong. And I was really starting to find that annoying, and it had the effect of making me not want to play Donkey Kong. Um... But it was probably around the second or third time that Donkey Kong came up in, a, in one of these friendly competitions that I kind of turned a corner, so to speak, and really started to like the game. Um, just more generally speaking, I, I find that, I don't know about you guys, but I find that happens with a lot of these old games. You, 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 play, you play credit after credit on them, and, and sometimes it gets very discouraging because you quickly hit this wall where you don't feel like you're getting any better, no matter what you do. You don't make any progress. The game feels impossible. But sometimes, not always, but sometimes, if you you persevere just long enough to fight through all that, you make a breakthrough. And that breakthrough might be a big bump in your personal best score. Um, maybe you see some certain strategy 
kind of click into place that makes you feel more in, in, in control of the game or whatever, things like that. And then you kind of, you know, it's kind of like an epiphany. And, and when that happens, it can be a game changer. It's like flipping a switch. In a matter of minutes, you go from being moments away from shutting the game off and never playing it again to being completely reinvigorated, ready to press on and fighting the game and bringing your score to new heights. So that happened with me and Donkey Kong eventually after lots of trying. And once I changed my mind and decided that I liked the game, it became quickly became one of my go-to games. Um, you know, one of those games that everybody has where your system or your emulator of choice or whatever, whenever you sit down in front of a big collection of games, there's always these games everyone has where they, you know, they may play an assortment, but there's always a small collection where they always go back to them. And for me, Donkey Kong became one of those. And, uh, you know, for me, I, I've played it fairly steadily since um, around that time, 2012, 2013. I've actually managed to make some pretty decent progress on improving my score. As of recording, I'm, I'm able to score up around the vicinity of 350,000, which, don't get me wrong, that's a complete joke compared to, you know, the world stage, like the world's top players, but I think it's a pretty pretty solid score in the realm of uh, mere mortals, if you will. You know, maybe I'm delusional, but I, I think I could, I could probably hit this, the kill screen. I, I would never be anywhere near the world record, but I think I could probably hit this kill screen if I really put some effort into the game uh, and hit it really hard rather than doing what I do now, which is basically just play a few credits here and there a few times a month, if that. But really, I just don't have the time or desire to, to uh, devote that much energy to one game. I'd rather use my kind of limited gaming time to play an assortment of games. Um, anyway, we'll see what happens. Um, so, real quick here, I, I guess I decided I'm going to as I said, there's four four stages, or four screens to the game. Now let's go through some very basic tips. I mean, there these are things that uh, that an advanced player will listen to and go, yeah, that, that's completely obvious. This is completely rudimentary, but um, if you're just First, you know, you're just getting into the game and you're looking for some ideas on how you might be able to get off the starting blocks. I'll just run through a few quick tips here. Before I get into the, the screens, this needs to be said. Um, first things first, Donkey Kong, unlike Pac-Man, it, it can't be won on memorization uh, in patterns. So if you're looking for those, forget it. Get that out of your head. And in fact, that's one of the things that the fact that it's kind of random makes it a um, a really great competitive high score game, because the the title doesn't go to the person with the best memory; it goes to the person with the best skill. There are definitely kind of approaches and strategies that you can use, but they're not specific dance steps. They're just kind of general strategies, um, and we'll get into some of those a bit in a minute. Starting with the uh, barrel stage, the uh, probably the most iconic looking one with the the pink girders and all that. Now, the first thing that should be mentioned is there's two hammers on the stage that, you know, you grab the hammer that allows you to smash the barrels, and when you have the hammer, you can't go up and down ladders, and the, the, the hammer is on a timer. It only lasts so long, and then it disappears. 
Um, there's one right near the bottom of the screen, and there's one right near the top of the screen. Uh, roughly speaking, lower right and upper left. As a tip, just that, that first that first hammer, I know it's tempting to, to grab it and, and smash a bunch of barrels and get points and improve your score, but the truth is you have to be a very, very good Donkey Kong player to use the bottom hammer and consistently survive. Because what happens is you grab that hammer, time ticks by, and the game gradually gets harder and harder as the level progresses. So what you're doing is you're you're killing time down at the bottom of the screen while the game is getting harder on you. and um, Which makes it a lot more challenging to get the rest of the way. Um, so really, until you're an expert, or at least very become very skilled in the game, just skip the bottom hammer and focus on getting further into the game. Because really, most of your score comes from the bonus timer anyway. That's the timer that counts down and says how many points you get when you finish the level. That's where you get most of your score anyway. So if you're going for high score, the, the bottom hammer just isn't worth it for somebody who's just, just starting out especially. Um, now, kind of neat trick in the game that you may have heard of is that you can actually control the behavior of the barrels somewhat. It would be kind of a lengthy description to cover this topic in, in any great detail, but the gist of it is a barrel is much more likely to go down a given ladder if your joystick is pressed in the direction of that ladder, i.e. left or right with respect to Mario's current position. At the moment, the barrel passes uh, passes the ladder. So, for example, say you're standing on, on the second girder, and there's a, a barrel approaching you from the right uh, on the level above you, and it's approaching a ladder. If you push your joystick towards that ladder, then you're greatly increasing the chances that when that barrel crosses that ladder, it will go down that ladder. You can't, it's not 100%, and um, there are various factors that affect the likelihood that you will be able to control it to do your bidding. It doesn't have to be the, the, the girder immediately above you. It can be any level above where you're standing. It doesn't work on anything below, but, um, but any level above where you're standing. If you push the joystick in the direction towards a, a barrel as it approaches a ladder then it will tend to go down that ladder. Not guaranteed to, but you're greatly increasing the chances that it will. Um, so you can use this to your advantage and kind of look ahead and see the barrels that are coming and control where they go. So in a lot of cases, you can make the barrels completely short-circuit the screen so that they, they, you don't even need to jump over them or encounter them or deal with them in any way because you, you make them bypass you uh, and you can walk right past them. It's a really cool trick, and it's pretty much essential to uh, any kind of high score on Donkey Kong. And lastly, the last thing I'm going to mention about barrel control is um, you don't even need to be walking to make this happen. You can be stuck on a ladder, so go climb halfway up a ladder, and you can do this trick where you hold your joystick right or left and control the barrels. It still works. You don't need to be walking or moving or on a platform. You can be on a ladder and not doing anything, but push the joystick right or left and it'll, it'll still work. Getting back to the hammer a bit, I mentioned, at least at first, ignore the bottom hammer. When you get the top hammer, you'll notice there's a, uh, or any hammer in the game for that matter, there, you'll hear this repeating tune that plays. 
Um, what you really need to do is, is use that tune as a cue for how long the hammer power-up lasts. Because for me, one of the most frustrating deaths in this game is is when you've got the hammer and you know you're getting towards the end of it and you see one more barrel coming and you try and, and you think, I'm going to try and smash this barrel. And then right at the last split second before you smash the barrel, the hammer runs out and then the barrel hits you and you die. That drives me absolutely crazy. But, so what you need to do to, to hedge against that is you need to... The, the hammer does blink. That that's supposed to, I guess that's supposed to indicate that it's about to run out. I find that useless personally. So what you got to do is you listen to the tune that plays and learn to recognize when the end of it is coming. Um, and, and I'm not going to describe how you do that. The only way to do that is to hear it enough times and then you'll start to recognize when it's going to end. But the point is, use that tune... To your advantage and use it to, to time the ending of the precise ending of your your hammer power up so you don't have these barrels running into you at the last second which is extremely frustrating another thing on the hammers when you when you have it on the barrel stage you're going to need to whenever you whenever you have the hammer and you want to hit a barrel you have to be standing still um if you're for example if a barrel is approaching from the right and you're walking towards it even if you have the hammer, there's a good to fair chance that that barrel will just go right underneath the hammer and hit you and kill you. Um, that's very frustrating. Uh, it's not my favorite thing in the game, but that's the way it works. So the way to avoid that is you can walk towards the, the barrel, but as soon as, just before it's about to hit you, you stop and stand stationary holding the hammer. And as long as you're not moving at the moment you encounter the barrel... And if you have a hammer, you're guaranteed to successfully smash the barrel and not die. To summarize, make sure you're not walking and not walking and holding the hammer. Uh, you know that old phrase, don't run with scissors? Well, in this case, it's don't run with a hammer. Stand still, let the barrel come to you, and, and you'll be safe. Another thing is on that board, Donkey Kong will throw these random, they're impossible to predict, these wild barrels that don't follow the usual path down the girders. They just kind of tumble down the screen. And a lot of those fall directly beneath Donkey Kong. So you want to, you don't want to spend very much time directly beneath Donkey Kong, especially when you get towards the top of the screen, right around where the top hammer is. Um, so don't hang out there any longer than you have to because you're just increasing the chances that he's going to drop one of these wild barrels right on your head and kill you. So get out of there as quickly as you can. The second screen that you'll see if you play the American version of the game, but um, it's actually the last screen of any given level. It's the rivet stage. That's the one with the blue, the flat blue platforms where you have to pick up the rivets. There's four on each side that you have to pick up, and then the platforms drop out, and Donkey Kong crashes to the ground, and you save the girl. Um, there's a few well-known patterns. I don't really, I don't think patterns a good word because it's um, it won't be the same all the time, but let's say strategies. It's easier if you just check YouTube to see how it's done, but the general thing is that there's two hammers. There's one on the lower left. So if you start by going up the left side of the screen, grab the the first rivet, skip the second rivet where the, where the hammer is, and then get the third and fourth on the left side of the screen, then come back down. And the reason why you skip that second rivet is because the hammer is next to it. And you jump up, grab the hammer, and leaving that rivet intact allows you to walk across it and then proceed to the right side of the screen. Whereas if you 
you get the rivets sequentially as you climb up the screen, then you, you grab the hammer and you're stuck in that little section on the left side of the screen because you can't walk over the gap left by the rivet. So I know that probably sounds confusing and it's better if you just kind of watch a video and they're all over YouTube, so check that out. But just know that any anything you see them do on there, it's it's not a pattern. It's not something you can do that's infallible. You follow it as a guideline, but there's a good chance you're going to need you're going to encounter things that kind of break your pattern or strategy, and you're going to need to think on your feet and just survive. So don't think it's a pattern because it's not. The movements of the enemies on the route stage, those fireballs, they're they're random. Uh, you can't coax them down ladders like you can coax the barrels down ladders on the on the barrel stage. Um, you might think you're influencing them, but but you're not. Um, the code's been deconstructed. This has been pretty much proven. The movements are random. If they're on the same level as Mario, they'll never go down a ladder, but they may decide to go up a ladder. So to put it in more general terms, the uh, enemies on the uh, rivet stage, they will never seek a vertical position that's below Mario. So keep that in mind. Another thing to know on that screen is when you hit one of the firefoxes or fox fires or whatever they're called, when you hit one with a hammer, it'll respawn on the left side of the screen if Mario is on the right side of the screen and vice versa. So let's say you, you have the hammer, you're on the right side of the screen, and you smash one of the enemies. If you If you continue to be right of center then the enemy will respawn on the left, and vice versa. So you use that to adva your advantage to control where the uh, enemies respawn after you kill them. Um, moving on to the elevator stage. This is the one that a lot of people struggle with because those springs go across the top become really difficult to navigate. I'd recommend starting by focusing on just learning how to get past the stage. Don't worry too much about point pressing um, until you become more of an advanced player because, again, say you spend a bunch of time going here and there to gather two, three hundred points, but then you're burning that time off your bonus timer. Um, so you're really not getting that much benefit anyway, and all you're doing is exposing yourself to more risk in the meantime. The only really challenging aspect of this stage is dodging the springs at the top of the level, especially after uh, level four and up. This is too complicated to even bother describing in a podcast, so check it out on YouTube. You can see how you can look for different visual indicators on, on these springs and, and how to approach them and when to run so that you can survive. Those springs in the top level, they're really easy the first time you encounter them. Slightly more difficult the next time, but then every time after that, they're, they're pretty brutal if you don't understand how it works. So um, it, take, it does take practice and timing, but once you figure that that out how to do that then that screen actually becomes pretty easy the uh, cement factory or pie factory or whatever you want to call it the next, the next stage with the conveyor belts and the cement pies um, the thing with this stage is it, it can be either the most difficult or the easiest of them all and it really all comes down to the hand you're dealt uh, with respect to the random movements of the fireballs um, one thing you, you really need to know is that the fireballs spawn out of that burning garbage can that's in the center of the screen near the top, and they will always leap out of that barrel on the same side that Mario is on. It doesn't matter what level what level Mario is on, like vertically. As long as, for example, as long as he is left of center of the screen, 
when a fireball spawns, and that fireball will leap out to the left, and vice versa uh, on the right. So a good strategy for that screen is to, for example, on the first time, on, the, on level 3, um, hang out on the left of center, allow all three fireballs to jump out to the left, and then make a break for the right and try and come up the right side of the screen. I mean, that's by no, that helps a lot. It helps your odds, but it's by no means foolproof. And really, the uh, the right side is, if you do get a free pass and coax all the fireballs out onto the left side at the very start of the screen and then make a break up the right side, there's a good chance, well, maybe not a good chance, but there's a reasonable chance you'll get a complete, you know, free pass right up at the top. You can walk, because all the fireballs will be on the left, and you can just... Like walk in the park, go up the right side of the screen and, and clear the stage. But a lot of times, the randomness of the game kicks in and those fireballs make their way over to the right before you can make that clean break, so you're going to need to think on your feet. If you find yourself in that position, then actually the, there's a, some advantages to going up the left side if you can. Because the uh, the fireballs move a lot faster left to right than they do right to left, so that means that... Um, if you're on the right side of the screen, then the, the then the fireballs will, you know, tumble towards you a lot quicker than if you're on the uh, left side of the screen. So that that's uh, something to think about. One thing that's extremely important to understand on that stage is, you'll notice that Donkey Kong slides left to right across the top of the screen. He goes from, you know, the far left. He slides across the far right, then then back again. And that. The first conveyor that you hit when you're climbing up, you start at the bottom of the screen, you climb one ladder, and then you're on a conveyor belt that's pulling you one way or the other. And then it suddenly changes direction on you, which can kill you if you're uh, not careful. So it might make you walk right into uh, an enemy or, or something like that. But you, the good news is you can. there's a way to know exactly when it's going to change directions. If Donkey Kong, like I said, he slides back and forth at the top of the screen, every time he hits the left side of the screen the conveyor belt will change directions. So you can always see it coming, you can always anticipate it, um, which makes it much less likely that you'll have a fluke encounter with a with an enemy and die. There'll always be the argument that video games are meant to be played for fun. Believe me, some of it's a lot of fun. Video games are meant to be played at home, relaxing, on a couch, amongst friends, and they are, and that's fun. But competitive gaming, when you want to attach your name to a world record, when you want your name written into history, you have to pay the price. I had somebody draw an analogy for me once that I always remember. The top French pilot in World War I shot down 24 enemy planes. The top American pilot, you don't know his name, do you? Nobody does, but it's Eddie Rickenbacker. Shot down 26 enemy planes. The German ace, the Red Baron, everyone knows who the Red Baron is. That's because he shot down 87 enemy planes. I mean, he was the best. There's just, there's a level of difference between people. And it translates into some games. If I have all this good fortune, if everything's rolling my way, if all these balls have bounced in my favor, there's some poor bastard out there who's getting the screws put to him. <laughs> no matter what I say, it draws controversy. It's sort of like the abortion issue. 
If you're for it, you're a son of a gun. If you're against it, you're a son of a gun. Uh, I'm not God. I don't have all the answers. So I have to be careful how I share my opinions. Oh, Billy Mitchell always has a plan. <laughs> it's annoying when somebody's ahead of you. you know, when you're not the lead dog, the view doesn't change. And I always wanted the view, so. So Donkey Kong is inarguably a classic for the ages. But, just like any other game of its caliber and historical significance, it kind of faded into the rearview mirror as the arcade and home console industries forged ahead in search of, you know, bigger and better things. As a side note, I'd argue that they definitely found bigger, but whether or not they found better is a matter of debate. But I guess I'll resist the temptation to go off on that tangent for now. Anyways, eventually something happened that would vault Donkey Kong back into the broader pop culture consciousness, so to speak. Nowhere near the heights reached its heyday. Still, there was definitely a bit of a mini Donkey Kong revival more than a quarter century after the game's initial release when a little documentary film called King of Kong Fistful of Quarters was released in 2007. Now, if you're listening to this show, uh, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and assume you're already pretty much up to speed on what the film is about. But just in case, the, the super Cliff Notes version goes something like this. And uh, as an obligatory note, there will be spoilers throughout this discussion. So listen at your own peril. So the Cliff Notes. We've got, I kind of uh, wrote these down here, a laid off and down and out engineer named Steve Wiebe, who is a big fan of Donkey Kong from way back. He decides that he's kind of needs a distraction and something fun uh, to take his mind off the stresses of life. Uh, he's the owner of a Donkey Kong arcade machine and very skilled at the game. So he, in all his free time from being laid off, he decides to find out if there's any generally accepted world record on Donkey Kong. So he takes to the internet and quickly discovers Twin Galaxies, which is the well-known score tracking organization that dates, uh, that dates back to the 80s, the brainchild of a man named, uh, man named Walter Day. On the Twin Galaxies website, Weeby sees that the official Donkey Kong world record belongs to a guy named Billy Mitchell with a score of 874,300 points. Steve Weeby felt, uh, feels that score is well within his reach. So he gets to work filming his Donkey Kong gameplay and hoping to capture proof of a new world record. Eventually he succeeds. He submits his videotape, hoping to be crowned the new champ, but he ends up being met with all kinds of unfair scrutiny and suspicion from Twin Galaxies. 
the filmmakers cut back and forth between Weeby, who is, you know, at this point clearly being cast into the paradigm of that kind of underdog protagonist, and Billy Mitchell, with his lanky stature and mullet, was clearly supposed to embody the paradigm of the detestable villain. Um, also included in the movie are interview, interviews and scenes depicting a whole cadre of socially awkward arcade nerds, um, most of whom hold a thinly veiled allegiance to Billy Mitchell and are kind of, or they seem kind of reluctant to welcome Weeby into the club. And, uh, just generally speaking, the film just kind of documents the uphill battle of Steve Weeby as he tries to surpass Billy Mitchell's decades-old world record and the struggles he faces in trying to do so. That's kind of like a gist of, you know, kind of the scenario that the film depicts. So, uh, as mentioned, the movie debuted in 2007, and um, all these years later, it stands as somewhat of a cult classic in uh, retro gaming circles, even though nowadays it's all but openly acknowledged that the film is more of a kind of a loose, fictionalized account of events than it is a bonafide factual documentary. No secret, at least, at least not anymore, that some kind of creative editing was employed and scenarios were outright fabricated in order to kind of craft a screen uh, screen friendly story arc. On that note, it could be argued that the most glaring fabrication in the movie is the very premise of the film itself. Recall, as I said earlier, the film holds that Billy Mitchell was the official Donkey Kong World Champion with a score of 874,300 points. He supposedly achieved that score in 1982 at the tender age of 17, and by all accounts, that score actually happened. But the problem is, so did several other scores that were omitted from the movie for the sake of dramatic expediency, or at least that's what it looks like. Uh, I'll get into that a little bit in a minute. So on screen in the movie, Billy Mitchell is, you know, he's famously characterized as part train wreck and part legend. Some of the stuff that comes out of his mouth in the movie makes you kind of shake your head, roll your eyes, think he's completely nuts. Yet his gaming skills are portrayed as almost like, you know, godlike and virtually untouchable, which kind of empowers him to stand as the de facto ringleader to uh, kind of a fawning clan of arcade weirdos that kind of get a little bit of screen time in the movie. Now, I certainly don't doubt that Billy Mitchell, at least uh, at the time of filming, was kind of idolized by a bunch of middle-aged dudes who pegged their self-worth to their high score on Dig Dug. No, I really don't, you know, I think that portrayal in the film is probably reasonably accurate. But, like, 
in researching this, and they're based on the internet record. The part in the movie about Billy Mitchell's 1982 Donkey Kong world record remaining intact for over two solid decades. I mean, the evidence shows that's just simply not true. The fact is, the official Twin Galaxies Donkey Kong world record actually changed hands in the year 2000 to a guy named Tim Serby, who managed to squeak past Billy Mitchell's 1982 score with a score of 879,200. And that score stood for a few years. Not to be outdone, Billy Mitchell uh, later surpassed Tim Serby's score again, took the record back with a score of 933,900, which he evidently achieved live in front of an audience at a Milwaukee gaming convention in 2004. So what's interesting about this is both Tim Zerby's score and the score that Billy Mitchell responded with to beat it, both of these scores were officially acknowledged by Twin Galaxies. Both of these scores occurred before the time period depicted in The King of Kong, and both of these scores are ignored in the film's narrative. Kind of strange, right? For a documentary. To muddy the waters even further... Steve Wiebe, don't forget Steve Wiebe, our repressed everyman protagonist. He had himself submitted no fewer than four videotape scores in 2003 and 2004, all of which, if taken at face value at the time of submittal, would have been New World Records. But, you know, as, as you see in the movie, much to the chagrin of Steve Wiebe, he was kind of unknown to the Twin Galaxies clique. And as a result, he was treated, you know, as a bit of an unwelcome outsider. His score submissions were met with a kind of an uh, almost overbearing forensic level of scrutiny by Twin Galaxies referees. And this level of scrutiny... Uh, uncovered some kind of procedural missteps and technicalities that would kind of ultimately served as justification for invalidating the scores or like not accepting the submissions type thing. As an example of one of the things the technical uh, technicalities they used to uh, um, discard Steve Wiebe's scores was Steve Wiebe's use of a so-called uh, double Donkey Kong board set. Now, what that is is it's a it's a, a a arcade board that you can install in your Donkey Kong cabinet that plays both Donkey Kong Jr. and Donkey Kong. <clears throat> it's kind of like an aftermarket kit. And um, when that was discovered, a judgment was re uh, reached by Twin Galaxies officials to uh, reject Steve Weeby's scores because technically they were not achieved on original, unadulterated Donkey Kong hardware. Ouch. But by this time, you know, word of Steve Wiebe's Donkey Kong exploits had already hit the streets in the competitive, you know, arcade gaming community. His name was already out there, and that he was this, this contender. And based on what I can tell from reading through the history, um, the ruling to reject Steve Wiebe's scores was not formally announced right away which I think caused some confusion in the community. So in other words, 
I think some people thought he was on top, like he was holding the record, when in fact, behind the scenes, the referees had rejected the scores, but they just didn't announce as much. This is all great fodder for ramping up conflict in, in the drama, in the movie. So the rejection of these scores is painted as some uh, somewhat of a scandal on screen, with the unmistakable message being that Steve Wiebe was unfairly thwarted at every turn by Twin Galaxies politics and corrupt officials, you know, twirling their mustaches, keen to keep Billy Mitchell on top. There's even a claim made in the movie that, you know, there's, you know, they make kind of a big deal about this in the movie that some of Billy Mitchell's thugs were sent to uh, Steve Wiebe's house to tear open his Donkey Kong machine and inspect the internals. Um, and actually, best I can tell, that actually happened. You know, that's, you know, there's, there's a large kernel of truth in that, but although I think the film makes those events sound a fair bit more sinister than they actually were, the film almost implies that you know, Steve Wiebe's wife answers a knock at the door and there's these big intimidating agents demanding access to the Donkey Kong machine that's in the garage at once. Um, you know, so it's this big scene when I think, in fact, it was probably more like, you know, they ring the doorbell and a couple of, she answers the door and there's a couple doughy nerds holding big Slurpees saying, um, ma'am, we're here to look at the Donkey Kong machine, please, and thank you. You know, of course, I can't prove that either way, but that's kind of what I'm picturing. Anyways, uh, in researching this, interestingly, I, uh, I was able to find some old archived Twin Galaxies message boards where... This whole controversy was being discussed by many of the same guys shown in the in the movie, uh, including Steve Wiebe himself. You know, Billy Mitchell doesn't ever participate in the online discussions or anything, so he's he's not. You know, he doesn't poke his head in there to say anything. But, um, but you know, I read through some of this, and so at least I can vouch, based on simple research that anyone can do, that the general controversy shown in the movie over Steve Wiebe's scores. It's actually you know it's quite real. Know, whether they fudge some details or not, the general idea of it's it's true. Um, for a peek into the controversy, uh, long before it was ever made into a movie and widely publicized, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to read an excerpt from an actual archived Twin Galaxies forum post from username Steve J. Weeby, dated November 10th, 2004. It's a fairly lengthy post, so I won't read the whole thing, but uh, it reads in part. No one can expect to play any sporting game and be subject to shifting rules while the competitors are exempt from those rules. Twin Galaxies has been viewing several tapes of mine for almost a year now and could have said that a PCB test was mandatory long ago so that the appropriate steps could have been taken. I respect what Twin Galaxies does and know it's a thankless job, but I think that this situation could have been handled by uh, Twin Galaxies could have been handled better by Twin Galaxies as well. I'm not trying to hide from any kind of verification. I just want any competitor 
have a board test as well, even if the board is believed valid. Components on a board can break, unnoticed, and alter play. Is not only fair. I have accepted the fact that Twin Galaxies has dismissed my score, and I will probably have to replay it. So the above is just to shed light on what transpired. People need to hear both sides of the story. Signed, Steve Weeby. Interesting. So, as far as Twin Galaxies rejecting scores performed in the Double Donkey Kong board, um, well, even though I know, personally, there's probably no practical difference in you know the gameplay between the two boards, I kind of understand why that rule would be in place. I mean, it's the only way to ensure, beyond any doubt, uh, a level playing field. Um, Billy Mitchell has a friend, uh, a fellow classic arcade gamer turned lawyer named Steve Sanders, um, who is prominently featured in the King of Kong movie. And um, on the subject of um, you know, the fairness of rejecting Steve's scores... He makes some comments on in the bonus features of the DVD for the King of Kong. Uh, this friend, Steve Sanders, um, he, he he sits down for an interview and he sheds some light on why Steve Weeby was treated the way that he was when he was first sending scores into Twin Galaxies. And I gotta admit, when I saw this interview, it kind of, you know, when I listen to what he has to say, it kind of makes sense when you hear him explain it. So um, here's a short clip of uh, of that interview with Steve Sanders. Twin Galaxies early on recognized that there is a big problem with guys trying to lie and cheat their way in to the record books. Video games, classic arcade gaming, sort of then died for 15 years and was resurrected in the internet uh, advent of the emulators, MAME and Retrocade and some of those. And almost immediately, people started to, again, lie and cheat their way into the record books. Or, or attempt to at least, and Twin Galaxies had to put the clamps on that. Um, and they did several things in the emulator world to stop lying and cheating, and, but then ab about that same time, all of a sudden, here's a guy making a claim about Donkey Kong, a game that nobody had ever come close to Billy on back in the 80s. So immediately, not just Billy, but all of Twin Galaxies were suspicious. Wait a second, is somebody really as good as Billy? Nobody ever was before. That sounds really odd. And with all the cheating that had gone on 20 years before and now again with MAME, the first thought was, let's verify. Let's go find out, is this really true? Was there a double standard? You bet. Twin Galaxies knew who Billy Mitchell was. If Billy Mitchell called me up today and said, Steve, I just scored 1.2 million on Kong, I wouldn't say, I doubt that, prove it. I'd say, Billy, I know you, I believe it. Uh, he, he was absolutely trustworthy. Steve Levy was an unknown guy. Are we going to put him to a, so, so to speak, higher standard? Yeah. Until we know him and trust him, that's what we're going to do. So, we've established that the official world record that existed during the time frame depicted in the King of Kong movie was not Billy Mitchell's mythical 1982 score, as claimed in the movie. And we've highlighted a few other areas where drama was obviously exaggerated by the filmmakers but you know another thing that needs to be mentioned is that billy mitchell is really made out to be a huge douchebag in the movie as anyone who's seen the movie can can, uh, can attest yet to this day in the real world he continues to travel around you know 
He goes to gaming conventions and various events. He really seems to be a, a genuine ambassador for classic gaming. And from what I can tell, you know, from accounts online, everybody who meets him in person seems to claim he's a really nice guy in real life. You know, so what gives? Were the filmmakers really that dishonest in their portrayal of Billy Mitchell? Or is there something to it? Is he really kind of a douchebag? You know, for a long time, it seemed like the answer to the question was that he was really just given a very dishonest portrayal in the movie, and he's actually a really nice guy. But um, there have been some semi-recent developments that make things a bit more complicated in that regard, uh, regard. and um, I'll get to that topic shortly. Regardless of, you know, playing loosey-goosey with the facts, uh, the King of Kong movie is still, you know, it's an entertaining film that skillfully squeezes entertainment value from the time, time-honored, time you know, concept of having the humble underdog protagonist against the detestable villain type character. And it would be kind of, you know, it would definitely be an understatement to say that the King of Kong is kicked up some dust since it's released uh since it's released not only in the realm of competitive classic gaming but retro gaming in general i say that because through my participation in the online community over the last several years seriously like i've lost count of the number of times i've encountered somebody who cites the king of kong as kind of the impetus behind their current interest in retro games you know, regardless of whether it's a nostalgic rediscovery of an old passion or a new fascination altogether. The examples of both, talking about King of Kong, kind of helping them discover this stuff. And looking at Donkey Kong specifically, you know, the official scoreboard for Donkey Kong has absolutely exploded since the movie came out. Um, With the high scores depicted in the film being, you know, surpassed dozens of times in the uh, intervening years. You know, in fact, Billy Mitchell and Steve Wiebe, I mean, they were, they're shown as these kind of, you know, kings, kings of Kong in the movie. And, um, but they've been, in reality, they've been completely crowded out of the, uh, the top ranks of the Donkey Kong standings, like long ago from all kinds of other players. You know, so what, you know, what does the future hold for, for competitive Donkey Kong. I don't know. I can't see the fight for the throne going on forever. Um, not only is the game decades old, which is obviously working against it, but it has the, you know, the well-known um, thing from the movie. <laughs> Remember from the movie, it has, has what's known as a kill screen. He's going to have a shot at getting to the kill screen. Uh, as far as I know, no one's ever achieved a kill screen on the Donkey Kong <clears throat> machine at Fun Spot. Donkey Kong is really strange in that it actually lets you play the um, the kill screen level for maybe five seconds or so. Everything looks normal, and then suddenly Mario just up and dies on you. There's a potential Donkey Kong kill screen if you want to watch. If anybody wants to see, there's a Donkey Kong kill screen coming up. Uh, there's a Donkey Kong kill screen coming up if anybody wants to watch. There's a Donkey Kong kill screen might be coming up if anybody wants to see it. There's a potential Donkey Kong kill screen if you want to watch. Hey, Todd. If you're interested, uh, there might be a Donkey Kong kill screen in a couple minutes. And uh, 
you know, it's not going to get any easier. Basically, the, the the game developers didn't didn't count on anybody getting that far into it. So, um, you get past a certain point, and the game just doesn't know how to handle any further progress, and uh, you just up and die, kill screen. So, um, and that happens at the same kind of level every time. So, what that means is that there's only so many playable levels available in the game, and therefore there's only so many points that are available. And uh, which means there must be some kind of theoretical cap on how many points can be scored before the, the you know, the score is, is maxed out. And uh, opinions vary slightly on what should be considered the maximum humanly obtainable Donkey Kong score, but as of recording this uh, this episode of the podcast, the world record belongs to a fellow named Robbie Lakeman with a score of 1,247,700 points, which... Wow. That is um, 400,000 points higher than Billy Mitchell's mythical record depicted in King of Kong, uh, which is a full 50% increase over that score. Um, the general consensus seems to be that we're, you know, almost at the limit, inching ever closer with each incremental improvement, obviously. And to, you know, to drive this point home, if you watch a little bit of video of any recent Donkey Kong world record run, like you can find it on YouTube and stuff like that, you'll see just how precise and intense the player needs to be to squeeze out every point possible if they're going to have any hope of beating the record before hitting the kill screen. What makes it tough is really that the availability of points, you know, in, in the, you know, largely comes down to luck of the draw. Playing a perfect game isn't good enough. Because you need to play a perfect game and simultaneously be lucky enough to have the game serve you up all the right scoring opportunities. Because it's it's not it's not a, a game that plays the exact same every t- every time, like Pac-Man, for example. There's a great Donkey Kong site called uh, the Donkey Kong Blog on the internet. Um, that's uh, DonkeyKongBlog.blogspot.com. Um, if you want to check it out really cool if you're uh, inter- uh, interested in, in this type of thing. And that site, it's just a, you know, it's like a blog. It contains tons of great articles and commentary and everything about competitive Donkey Kong. The guy who uh, runs the site, really, really good writer, really, you know, really good, got a really good way with words and stuff. And um, on the topic of, you know, uh, Donkey Kong really nearing the end of how many points are available, um, the author of that blog, he came up with a great analogy in one of his posts uh, where he said, um, I don't remember the exact quote, but to paraphrase, he said something like, but the odds of beating the current Donkey Kong world record now, um, it's almost like the odds of being dealt a four of a kind in a poker game where it takes uh, several hours to deal out the cards for each hand. Now, if you think about it that way, it's like, wow. So, moving on, I, I mentioned earlier that there have been some semi-recent developments that have called Billy Mitchell's true character into question. So what's up with that? Well, in 2017, a formal dispute was filed with Twin Galaxies. Twin Galaxies has like a dispute system where if you have, if you feel you have reason to dispute the uh, legitimacy of a score, 
you can uh, file a formal dispute. Um, and so somebody did that. 2017, um, there was a gamer who claimed to have evidence that Billy Mitchell cheated to obtain his uh, Donkey Kong World Records. Now, of course, um, the records in question were no longer records at the time that the investigation started, but, you know, so you might wonder, well, who cares then? But uh, I think since Billy, you know, has managed to kind of become such a figurehead in classic gaming, like such a, he's built such like a, uh, a name for himself. He's like a, he's almost like semi-famous in, in this niche hobby, um, based on these, based in large part on these achievements. Um, because of that, I think there was a lot of interest and attention surrounding the claims of, you know, are these scores fake or are they not? Ultimately, spoiler alert, after a long, drawn-out review process, Twin Galaxies actually ruled that the dispute was valid, and Billy Mitchell's scores were removed from the Twin Galaxies database. Not only that, but he was banned from participating in the Twin Galaxies scoreboards in any shape or form. And the Guinness Book of World Records removed Billy Mitchell's scores from their records as well. And they did that because Guinness relies on Twin Galaxies for uh, adjudicating video game scores. So if Twin Galaxies um, was discarding the scores, then uh, the Guinness Book discarded them as well. So that's a... That must have stung for Billy. Um, And this story has lots of twists and turns and details that I could go on and on forever about really, but uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to try to provide a brief summary here. And uh, so here goes. There are three scores of Billy's that were the focus of the dispute. The first score was, in many ways, the most famous because it was the centerpiece of a very dramatic moment in the King Kong movie. Now, if you've seen the movie, you remember that Steve Wiebe, um, who was really fed up with always having his abilities questioned and doubted and his tape scrutinized and discarded and everything. He decided to travel across the country to the 2005 annual Fun Spot Arcade Tournament to perform a live score on Donkey Kong in front of Twin Galaxies uh, referees and, you know, just to the general gaming community. And at that event, he managed to score... 985,600, which wasn't quite up to the level of his uh, videotape scores that were rejected. It was close. It didn't quite, you know, didn't quite surpass those. But nonetheless, it was the highest score ever performed live up to that point. Not only that, but um, Steve managed to somewhat infamously um, nail the very first uh, kill screen ever achieved on Funspot's Donkey Kong cabinet. I think everybody, as you see in the movie, was kind of hoping that Billy Mitchell would show up at that same tournament to square off live against Steve. But Billy was a no-show. What he did do, however, was send a videotape that he asked his minions to play on a VCR at the event. The videotape showed Billy scoring 1 million... 47,200 on Donkey Kong. 
which was good enough to be the world record, thus completely stealing Steve Weeby's thunder. Because, of course, that 1,047,200 is a fair bit higher than the score that Steve had just achieved live in front of that, that audience at, uh, at Fun Spot. And the movie makes a big deal about how upset Steve was by this. I mean, understandably. Being that, you know, he took all that time and effort to travel across the country to, uh, to uh, perform live, only to be overshadowed by his no-show nemesis, who sent in a videotape to be played at the arcade. Pretty lame. Um, so we'll talk a little bit more about that videotape in a minute. Um, movie kind of ends on this sad note that Steve Wiebe lost the battle. And it's kind of a downer. But after filming of the movie had wrapped up and they were about to start showing the movie at festivals and the like, Steve Wiebe actually managed to top Billy's um, videotape score with a, a score of 1,049,100, which he submitted to Twin Galaxies in August 2006. And um, since the score was achieved after the King of Khan uh, filmmakers had wrapped up production, there wasn't any kind of video coverage of it, but they they did manage to mention it as a, a text epilogue at the end of the movie. You know, they sometimes do that in movies, like, this is what happened after, you know? And uh, so it is mentioned there, so the movie does kind of end on that high note with uh, Steve Weeby on top. Um, which then, of course, brings us to the second score of Billy Mitchell's that uh, was part of the dispute. In the summer of 2007... Billy Mitchell topped Steve Wiebe's um, aforementioned record with a, a score of 1,050,200, which he supposedly performed at an 80s-themed mortgage brokers convention in Florida. Um, this performance was deemed a little bit strange even at the time because video of the performance was played on a big screen at the convention with no audio. And strangely, Billy himself was not actually seen physically playing the game. Supposedly, he was in another room, you know, playing the game on the cabinet, and the video was being tapped, you know, directly off the machine to this big screen at the convention. Um, but for this, we can only rely on Billy Mitchell's word. Like, we don't have any evidence of him actually physically playing the game. Because, of course, the... Uh, the video itself only shows the gameplay. It doesn't show anybody playing uh, playing uh, at an arcade machine. So this score of Billy's stood for almost three full years when um, a newcomer to the Donkey Kong scene, um, a plastic surgeon named Hank Chin, uh, stole the crown from Billy with a verified score of 1,061,700. And six months after that, we have the third and final score of Billy's that was part of the dispute against him. Um, at Boomer's Arcade in Florida, Billy supposedly put up a score of uh, 1,062,800 to beat Hank Chen and uh, retake the world record. No, not only that, but that same day, he supposedly took the world record for Donkey Kong Jr. as well. These scores were... Accepted by Twin Galaxies, but they were immediately suspicious to the community because the videotaped evidence of the scores doesn't show Billy himself playing the games. It only shows 
the actual gameplay um, you know, of the screen, and again, with no audio. The only witnesses to these supposed performances were Todd Rogers, who was a, a, a Twin Galaxies referee at the time, and, uh, and his girlfriend. But Todd Rogers, if you haven't heard of him, um, that's a whole other story. He was he's also been banned from Twin Galaxies uh, for submitting fraudulent scores, which is a whole other story. Um, if you haven't heard of him, uh, look up Todd Rogers and his uh, Atari Twenty Six Hundred dragster dispute, which was the center of that uh, whole controversy. So, if nothing else, uh, I think that whole thing makes Todd Rogers' credibility pretty questionable, and he's the only witness to these two world records by Billy Mitchell achieved on the same day. Um, and, you know, Billy claims there's all these people who witnessed this um, live, witnessed this game happening live, but none, he's just saying that. No one's coming forward to, to vouch for him. Video evidence is video evidence, so if, if he's got video evidence in, uh, of these scores, then what's the problem? Well... Glad you asked. Let's start with uh, some things that don't necessarily prove anything against Billy, but are definitely a bit strange. First of all, we have the fact that the standard way that most people, just what everybody submits, videotape scores to Twin Galaxies, is to set up a camera. Like especially if you're doing if you're doing an arcade game score, you set up a camera and you point it at the arcade game screen, and you stand there and you play the game. And the, the camera captures your score and the performance and everything. So in this type of recording, you can obviously see you can see the video game screen, and you can also see evidence that somebody is actually standing in a cabinet playing the game. You can hear the game sounds. You can hear the person talk. You can hear people in the background talk. You can see and hear their hands on the control panel and all that stuff. None of Billy Mitchell's tape scores, none of his three scores that were disputed, showed any of this because they just showed the actual game screen. And none of these videotapes had any audio whatsoever. To explain this kind of curious anomaly, um, Billy claimed that these tapes were recorded using a so-called direct feed technique. Basically, he's claiming that he's tapping the video signal directly out of the arcade cabinet into some kind of recording device, rather than putting a camera at the screen. So that it would explain why you just have kind of the video signal kind of reproduced, you know, full screen, and that's all you see. But, you know, that kind of opens some obvious questions. I mean, there's, with, with that kind of uh, recording, there's, there's absolutely no proof. You can't see Billy actually playing the game, that's, that, uh, you know, actually doing the performance that's depicted in the videotape. Um, the score that, uh, on the videotape that was played in the King of Kong movie on the VCR at the Fun Spot tournament, to steal CVU Sunder. I mean, that video shows a game of Donkey Kong, but it doesn't show anything else. It doesn't have any audio. It doesn't show Billy playing the game. Um, and that score was ultimately accepted. Uh, at the mortgage, uh, mortgage Brokers Convention that I told you about earlier, I mean, like I said before, the, the claim there was that he was supposedly, the way they explained it away there was that Billy was supposedly playing the game from a hidden room, like he's in another room playing the game and it's the video feed is being fed out to a monitor in the convention. 
and you know that sounds extremely hard to believe and of course the only we're just forced to to take Billy Mitchell's word for it on that there's no one no kind of credible independent source that's stepping forward to corroborate that and lastly um the third the third score at the boomers arcade the only witness of the record is a friend of Billy's who also happens to be a known cheater himself, who was banned from Twin Galaxies. Um, and the timing of that Boomer's event is also really suspicious. A week or so later, after that event, Billy was going to be... He was set to be inducted into the Video Game Hall of Fame. And at that little ceremony thing, where he was going to be inducted, um, of course, he he brought along some televisions and, and set them up. Um, and he's playing them side by side, you know, videotapes of his uh, Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong Jr. world record scores that he supposedly achieved a week before. And um, this one, this next point, is really kind of shady. Um, like I said, we don't have any video showing Billy Mitchell standing at an arcade machine playing these games of Donkey Kong or Donkey Kong Jr. from Boomers. But what we do have is a video from Boomers that was posted on YouTube um, where it, it's got Billy Mitchell kind of standing in front of the Donkey Kong machine with, with this, uh, I can't remember his name, but some friend of his. And um, what the video purports to show is that, um, you know, Billy's friend is uh, tinkering with the Donkey, Donkey Kong machine. He's taking the... Um, uh, he's standing in front of the Donkey Kong machine that supposedly Billy Mitchell just used to achieve the new world record, and he's going to remove the boards out of it and replace, uh, move the Donkey Kong boards out of it and replace them with the Donkey Kong Jr. board so that Billy Mitchell can then go on to perform the second record of the day, which was for Donkey Kong Jr. You know, so in the video, Billy's like, openly implying that that's what his friend is doing. He's changing out this board set, and you can see you can see the guy holding, you know, put, taking a board out of the cabinet, putting a different one in, um, so that, you know, making the swap so Billy can get his second record. But unfortunately for Billy, I think he underestimated the uh, community here, and some eagle-eyed viewers of that video, you know, called it out for, you know, basically to be a sham. The video is supposed to be showing the remove, uh, you know, some this guy removing a Donkey Kong board from the cabinet, and then installing a Donkey Kong Junior board. But people were able to conclusively determine, basically, um, by studying the characteristics of the board, um, they were they were able to conclusively determine that the video showed Billy's friend removing a Donkey Kong Junior board from the cabinet, and then reinstalling the same Donkey Kong Junior board. In other words, it was just like a staged kind of board exchange to, uh, you know, presumably something so you know something that Billy could use to to uh, support his double world record narrative. You know, very shady. Yeah, so that's not all. Of, like what I just everything I just explained there. That's not all the strange circumstantial evidence, but you get the idea. I mean. Uh, I can't go over all of it, um, but that those are some of the some some highlights, um, and it doesn't end with that. There's a you know, the technical analysis of Billy Mitchell's videotapes revealed some pretty damning evidence as well, um, and, and this is of a far more objective nature 
Um, and I think, you know, if this were in a court of law, this evidence would be a lot more, uh, a lot more significant. Um, the core of the dispute, uh, the core of the dispute claim is that, um, Billy actually performed his world record scores using an emulator, uh, presumably MAME, but we'll just generically say emulator, rather than using real arcade hardware as dictated by the rules. And this was, this fact was proven by examining screen transitions frame by frame. So in Donkey Kong, when the game changes from one screen to another, um, if you if you have, you know, if you have a video of a, a game in progress and when the game changes from one screen to another, if you advance the video frame by frame during a transition, then you can see you know, instant by instant, how new screens get drawn under the monitor. Um, and I'm not going to get into all the details because, I mean, if you're really interested, you can, you can, you know, look it up on the internet and, and uh, read up on the details. But, just, you know, just give you a gist. When you do this, you know, frame by frame analysis, watching how the, uh, the, the screens get drawn, the uh, emulator draws new screens distinctly different way than uh, the real arcade hardware does. So this frame-by-frame check can be used to distinguish real arcade hardware from emulation. You know, you know, at first, you know, when you first hear about this, it might sound like it's kind of hokey evidence, like, oh, come on, you're just... How can you really prove anything with this? You know, it might, it might sound like it's not very strong, but if you actually read about you know, read the reports and read about how the analysis was done, it really does become crystal clear that the, you know, the way the emulator draws screens is distinctly uh, different from real arcade hardware. Not only that, but it's extremely repeatable. So in other words, the the way that you see the emulator draw, I mean, you, you can do the same thing over and over again. You can record it over and over again and, and keep checking it. It's always going to look the same. And likewise for the arcade. You can record the arcade um, and, you know, keep checking and checking. It's always going to look the same. So these results are repeatable, and they're distinct from one another. And, of course, all of Billy Mitchell's tapes, they show the screen transition characteristics that are consistent with emulation. And, um, you know, and as such, they're inherently inconsistent with real arcade hardware. And there's just really no two ways around it. I mean, that's that's just the reality of it. So that, I mean, right there, it's nothing more really needs to be proven. That's against the rules. He's, he didn't use real arcade hardware, so the scores are, are, are invalid. Um, not only that, but, um, like, there's, you know, the recording of direct feed, like the way, what Billy Mitchell claimed, how he recorded, like, a direct feed out of the arcade cabinet. That's a pretty complicated task. I mean, it's not this straightforward as, you know, hooking an Atari up to a VCR or something like that. I mean, it, it, it's not, I mean, obviously not impossible. It can be done, but it, it's not a straightforward task. So it doesn't make much sense. It doesn't make any sense that Billy would, would do that, you know, choose that method on multiple occasions rather than just setting up a camera and filming the game screen like everybody else. I mean, everybody has some access to some kind of camera where you can just put it on a tripod, point it at the screen and play. It's so much simpler. I mean, why bother monkeying around inside the cabinet, connecting cables, blah, 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 doing all this stuff? Um, it just doesn't make any sense. 
Um, and the missing audio from the tapes, like I said, all of his scores that are submitted on these tapes, none of them have sound. And um, the missing audio kind of makes sense when you consider it, it kind of makes sense in, in the, um, you know, in the scenario where he's faking scores using MAME because um, the sounds produced from emulators uh, don't always match uh, exactly what the arcade games sound like. And with Donkey Kong in particular, I, I can definitely vouch that it sounds noticeably different on MAME than it does in a real cabinet. Um, so, obviously, anybody who knows that and they're using MAME to fake a score, they're going to want to hide the sound so that they're not putting this, you know, making, leaving obvious markers out there that could, you know, be used to identify the video as being uh, produced with MAME. Um, you know, again, that doesn't prove anything in and of itself, but it, you know, it fits. Um, and, and, these screen transitions are kind of the heart of the evidence uh, against Billy, but that's not it. There's even more than that. Um, there are, uh, you know, other suspicious aspects of, of, the, of the games shown on the tapes. Um, in Donkey Kong, if you're familiar with the game, you might recall that you get, um, you get these blue barrels that, uh, you know, every once in a while will come at you. There's the normal barrels, and then there's the blue barrels. And when you smash blue barrels with a hammer... Um, you get you get either 300 points, 500 points or 800 points for smashing blue barrels. And the number of points you get is is kind of it's randomly chosen by the game code. There's no real rhyme or reason. It's just the game using some algorithm just assigns you, you know, on a, I guess like a pseudo random basis either 300, 500, 800 points. And <laughs> what these investigators did was they actually went through Billy Mitchell's tapes and they counted the number of blue barrels that he smashed through the entire game. And they also tallied up the number of points that he received from smashing blue barrels. And they do some number crunching on this. And they, and they do the exact same exercise for, for several other legitimate, known legitimate videotape scores from other players. And they, they kind of tabulate the results. And what they found was that Billy Mitchell somehow managed to benefit way more than everybody else from his blue barrel smashes. So, you know, to put that in perspective, what that means is if, you know, on a legit performance, um, you'd expect that uh, on a big long game of Donkey Kong, that if it really is a legitimate performance in the, in the, these blue barrel smashes are assigned points, um, 300, 500, 800, they're assigned randomly then on average, over the course of a long game, you would expect on average everybody's kind of, uh, uh, you know, the benefit they get from the blue barrels should be, you know, roughly the same without too much variation. Um, but in tabulating these results over, you know, these these long kill screen games of you know, all the blue barrels throughout the entire game that's, that are smashed and in the, in the points that are awarded for it, Billy somehow managed to have these ridiculously um uh or these conspicuously higher benefits you know higher scores from from the blue barrels and um so how how could that be well no one's claiming that he you know hacked the code of the game to give himself more points but if he is using an emulator as suspected and as basically proven then that provides ways of explaining this blue barrel thing because 
um, in, you know, when you use emulators, you have this little thing called save states where you can, you can play the game up to a certain point and, and save it. And then, um, it's like a save point, And then say you, you play a level after that and you don't like how it goes, then you can just stop it and go back to your save point and replay from there again. So what that would allow him to do is he can go, he can go through and, uh, you know, play a level. And if he doesn't like the amount of points that he got in that level, like maybe the randomness of the game didn't give him uh, enough points for to keep him on a pace for to get the score that he was trying to get, then he could just stop and replay that level again, and um, and keep doing it until he's he gets a, a number of points that he's happy with, and then proceed. And then so do, in this way, he can stitch together like a golden, a single golden performance by replaying as many levels as he wants. Um, and just kind of stitch together kind of like a, a, a best of performance. Of course, that's only possible with uh, emulation and safe states. So, I'm not sure that there's um, smoking gun proof that that's what he did, but if you look at the statistics and the probability and the fact that all of his videotape scores have abnormally high scores, uh, abnormally high point values for his blue barrel smashes, it just it just defies, you know, defies reason that that's just random. Like he, that he just got lucky. There's there's something goofy going on. I mean, so there you have it. I mean, the evidence is pretty overwhelming that Billy Mitchell submitted bogus scores for Donkey Kong. And um, but you know, in the time since he was booted out of Twin Galaxies, he's um, he's vowed that he will, you know, prove himself. He's he's he gave this big speech about how he's going to go on like a road to redemption tour, he calls it. And he's going to prove that he's capable of achieving all the scores um, that he uh, had on the videotapes. He's been doing that, um, to his credit. I mean, he's been streaming live games regularly on Twitch. And um, after lots and lots of failed attempts, he actually did manage to uh, more or less match the scores from his uh, videotape submissions. Um, so, you know, good for him, I guess. But... Um, but it doesn't really change anything. I mean, I don't think anybody doubted that he's really good at Donkey Kong. I don't think that was ever... I don't think his Donkey Kong skill was ever really in dispute. It was just whether or not he got these particular scores at the times he said he did. Um, so these latest streams don't really change anything, but, um, you know, they seem like a little bit, you know, too little too late. You know, achieving the real scores doesn't magically erase or undo the damning, irrefutable evidence um, that um, tapes were faked, you know, all this evidence that was uncovered by these investigators. So that's it for the Donkey Kong dossier. Hope you enjoyed it. How about that Billy Mitchell saga, huh? Yeah, I don't know. I think some people would be inclined to think, you know, who cares if he fabricated some tapes it's just some silly old video game but I don't know I think your opinion or anybody's opinion on how important a video game score is that's kind of beside the point to me the big issue is for every one of those f- fake tapes that he sent in he was effectively dislodging a world record holder who genuinely 
invested the blood, sweat, and tears to get where they, they needed to be, like for spending hours and hours and hours of their life trying to achieve something, and they, and they get it, and then they get, they get removed from, based on some, you know, fraudulent videotape, that's, that bugs me a little bit, I admit. Hey, I don't hate Billy Mitchell. Uh, he does a lot of good for the classic arcade gaming scene. Um, but, you know, I guess some of his, some of the stuff he's done, I don't care for. That's all I'm going to say on that. You know, everyone's free to form their own thoughts. Uh, I've said my piece. Um, if you have any comments on the podcast, you can hit me up at pixeladvocate at outlook.com. And time for me to sign off. Don't forget, may we all appreciate what we have today and our fleeting spare moments. May we fondly reflect upon our pixel perfect past. Bye for now. Thank you.